0: Well, good morning, everybody. You have a youth pastor for the summer, so don't be shocked that there's a lot of allusions to youth ministry and to teenagers. Uh, this morning, I want to tell you about our vision statement at Trinity Anglican Youth, and I hope you've heard it before. I've talked about it a lot, but if you haven't heard it before, here it is. Teenagers are not problems to solve. They are wonders to behold. And there's a lot in that little statement that I hope you're already hearing before I explain it, that we want to be celebrating our teenagers. We want to communicate delight in our young people, that we cherish them. And sadly, there's been this history, this culture, especially the last hundred or so years in America, of expecting the worst out of our young people, expecting that they're going to be rebellious and challenging and cause us problems. And I don't want the church to be a place like that. Now, we've known for the last several decades, but really we've known longer than that, that the brain isn't fully developed until you're about 25 years old. That the last center of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, doesn't finish until then. And so teenagers don't have adult capacity for reasoning, for planning, for impulse control. And like I said, the brain science is rather new, but we've known that for a long time. And the, the challenge is not that That's true of teenage brains. The challenge is that we often look at that with judgment and cast shame and sad expectations rather than getting curious about what God is doing in our young people. I hope you hear that that curiosity, that wonder in our vision statement too. Because God is not surprised by the way our brains develop. God made it that way. God had a plan in place for the way he made us. And so God's not looking at our teenagers and saying, well, you're just kind of deficient until you're 25 years old. Virtually every biblical scholar agrees the apostle John had to have been a teenager when he received the call to follow Jesus. And many other scholars will argue that the rest of the disciples were around his age, a little bit older, but probably all of them under 25. And so from the very beginning of the church, God has been evangelizing the world through teenagers, through young people. And I have been blessed to witness this firsthand, how the teenagers of our church are some of the greatest evangelists in our community, that they are not thinking about whether they're going to be judged or whether it's going to be awkward or what consequences there are going to be for this relationship. They often are just thinking, oh, you should come to church with me. You need to hear about Jesus. They start talking about their Savior. They start talking about the one that they love and worship, and they're fearless about it, and we need to be more like them. It's Pentecost Sunday, the day that we remember that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, that they would be filled with power and go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so we've been in this Holy Spirit sermon series the last six or so weeks. And we're finally here at Pentecost. And this sermon is going to be all about the Holy Spirit and God's mission. And I really think we can learn a lot from our young people. Instead of looking down at them, we should be looking up to them and their example as evangelists. So we're going to be in Acts 2 1 through 41 this morning. It's a long text. We're not going to read it all the way through in one go. We'll break it up into three chunks. And we're going to see three things today in our text. First, the start of the mission of God is our life with God by the Spirit. Second, the content of the mission of God is the Son of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, the target of the mission of God is all those who are far off. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean but others mocking said they are filled with new wine the first thing I want us to notice in our text today is that the start of the mission of God is our life with God in the spirit and we have a little bit of work to do in our text to get there and I hope that doesn't surprise you I think Most Christians, at some point in their journey with Jesus, get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and get really confused. We say, what is happening here? What what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What what happened on Pentecost Sunday? What of that is normal Christian experience that I should expect for me? And what is an extraordinary outpouring for the apostles? And so I want to help you understand what Trinity teaches about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and what you can expect in your own life with the Spirit. I've shared in other sermons before a large chunk of my childhood, I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, which is a part of the Pentecostal movement of Christianity. And what Pentecostals, it's really in the name, what Pentecostals emphasize is that Pentecost is normative Christian experience. And we can agree with them to a point But what's really distinctly Pentecostal theology is that first, there is regeneration, there is new birth by the Holy Spirit where we have our faith in Jesus Christ and we are Converts were converted to following Jesus, but then a second subsequent and distinct experience called baptism in the Spirit, it should be expected of all Christians, this experience of of kind of overwhelming uh, by the Spirit and for power to serve God's kingdom. And while I think their intention is really good, I think it can be misleading, and I think it's methodologically flawed. It's not in the text per se. And so I want to help you understand how do you interpret narrative in the Bible so that you don't make rules out of things that aren't rules for all Christians. There's a principle that I want you to take home. The clearer parts of Scripture help us interpret the less clear parts of Scripture. And so, whenever you come to a place in the Bible and you're confused about what it's teaching you, look for a place that brings clarity that teaches on the same topic and brings clarity to that substance. And that'll often be you're reading a narrative, a story, and you're wondering what it teaches you. And you need to find a didactic, a teaching part of the text to make sense of it. Because there's not actually one pattern, one paradigm for how the Holy Spirit works in the book of Acts. You see in Acts 2, here's the apostles who clearly have prior faith in Jesus Christ and they haven't received the Spirit until the day of Pentecost when he's poured out on them in power. But then in Acts 8, you have Philip preaching in Samaria and it seems like a pattern is developing because he preaches the gospel, the Samaritans respond with faith, but they don't receive the Spirit until the apostles go and lay hands on them. Then that pattern is thrown out the window two chapters later. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He's preaching the gospel, and in that very moment, the Spirit falls on all of the hearers. And then, later, not Peter, but Paul, he's in Ephesus. He meets disciples of John the Baptist who've never heard the good news of Jesus. As soon as Paul preaches again, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you see different patterns, different paradigms. And again, the question becomes, which of these stories tells me what's normative experience as a Christian? What should I expect for me in my life with God? And that's why we need those clearer places of scripture. And the way that's going to work often as you're reading your Bible is you're going to find that a character in the story interprets the events for you. And we have exactly that in Acts chapter 11. Peter returns to the Jerusalem church. He's giving a report about how Gentiles had come to faith, and, and he preached the gospel, and they were filled with the Spirit. And so he is trying to wrestle with this idea of how have the Gentiles come to salvation. And this is what he says, Acts chapter 11. "'As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning.' And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Do you hear that? That's the interpretive key. Peter is saying, even though he was at Pentecost, witnessed the rushing winds and the tongues of fire and and speaking in foreign languages and prophecy, That's not what he says about all the people there in Cornelius' house. He says they believed in Jesus and they received the gift of the Spirit. That's what's normative experience. And in fact, we're going to find at the end of our text today, at the end of Acts 2, that's exactly what Peter promises to everyone who wants to respond to the gospel. He says, be baptized and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. So at Trinity Anglican Church, when we are talking about the baptism of the Spirit, we're talking about an experience that is for every believer that is for everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what's not necessarily normative is extraordinary, overwhelming, emotional, or supernatural experience. And that may come. You may have that experience. But Peter doesn't say that's the rule. That's what everyone must have. He says, when you put your faith in Jesus, they received the gift of the Spirit just like we did. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say baptism in the Spirit. So why have I gone down this lengthy rabbit trail here about the terminology of baptism in the spirit? It's because I want you to not have a stumbling block before you where you are either longing for an experience that you haven't had and thinking you're deficient in Christ because you haven't had some extraordinary supernatural experience or because you have had some experience and you think that's what you need to be clinging to, the experience itself rather than simply trusting in jesus by faith and so what we see here is that what is true of all christians is they have been given the gift of the holy spirit and that is why i say the start of the mission of god is our life with god by the spirit there is no christian in this room no follower of jesus here who doesn't have the gift of the spirit you have been gifted with the spirit And that is the starting place before we evangelize, before we witness, before we serve God in the world, is that life you have with God by the Spirit. And so I have two questions. One for non-Christians in the room and one for Christians in the room. There might be some here today who would say I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm interested, but I'm not a follower of Jesus. And here's the question I'd have for you. Do you hear in the the implications of what I'm saying this morning? Christianity is not a set of rules that you follow to please God. Christianity is not a religion that you must adhere to so that God will love you. Christianity is heaven come to earth. Christianity is a relationship with God today that by faith you can be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can have a transformed life now because God wants to dwell with you. Do you want that? Do you want to know God, not just a religious system? Because that's what Christianity truly offers. And then for the rest of us, I think most of us in the room who would identify as followers of Jesus, do you live like it's true? Do you live every day Like you really have this infinite, immediate access to the God of the universe who loves you? Do you really realize that the start of everything you could ever do for God is being with God by the Spirit? Do you return to that relationship every day? Do you nurture it? Do you return to God in prayer? Do you seek his face? Are you reminded of the great love and mercy he's poured out on you? The start of all mission is this baptism in the Spirit, the gift for everyone who believes in Jesus. So turn back to the text with me. That was a really long first point. My next two points are going to be much shorter, but this next reading is not short. We're going to read all of Peter's Pentecost sermon, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day The first thing we notice in our text is that the start of the mission of God is our life with God by the Spirit. But the second thing we see is that the content of the mission of God is the Son of God, the gospel of Jesus. And we don't have time to go line by line through Peter's sermon, but I think when you read it in the whole like we just did, you get the context, you get the point really quickly. So I'm just going to summarize and get to my point. Peter's responding to these bewildered crowds. What is happening? What does this outpouring of the Spirit mean? No, they're not drunk. God's Spirit really has been poured out. And he tells them that prophecy has been fulfilled. Joel's prophecy says that at the last days, God will pour his Holy Spirit not just on a select few, but on all of his people. And this is what you are witnessing. The last days have arrived. Salvation has come. We are in a new era but why? Why are we in this new era? Why has salvation come? Why is God pouring out his spirit like this? Because Jesus has come. Because Jesus, who is the real king of Israel, the greater David, David, he lived and died in his tombs here, but this Jesus, who came attested by mighty works of God, was put to death, and God rose him from the grave, and now he's exalted to the, on high to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And Peter says something remarkable about Jesus' exaltation. When Jesus arrives at the right hand of God in heaven, he receives as a gift the Holy Spirit, and then he pours the Holy Spirit out on his disciples. And so the Holy Spirit is the one sent from the Father and the Son, poured out on us by the Son, for the purpose of exalting the Son. Isn't it fascinating that the day that we're most drawn to think about the Spirit, Pentecost, and Peter preaches about Christ. The day we're most drawn to think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church, and Peter's sermon is Jesus. You see, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I had a a professor at Bible college who described the Holy Spirit's ministry like an engagement ring setting. If you've ever been engagement ring shopping, sure, you want a beautiful ring, but really it's all about the diamond. It's all about the gemstone in the middle. And so you don't want a ring that distracts from or detracts from that diamond. You don't want a setting that has too many fingers or they're too thick and the light doesn't get through so that diamond can shine. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is poured out in power upon the disciples and the first thing they do is start proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Christ, exalting him because that's what the Spirit wants to do in each one of us. And so we've just covered a huge amount of text in a very short time. The point of Peter's sermon is that when the Spirit comes, he moves us to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my question, my quick application for you all, is do you delight to talk about the gospel? Do you delight to share Jesus with others? Do you want to make him known? Is it your joy to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all the scriptures, the point of the whole Bible? Do you delight to tell others about your Savior? It's fascinating that in the rest of the book of Acts, no one prays for a filling of the Spirit. I mentioned earlier these two terms, the baptism in the Spirit and a filling by the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is an experience for all Christians, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. But throughout the rest of the New Testament, there is this experience, this filling of the Spirit that seems to be able to be repeated and also occasional that is for God's people to be empowered for service. But as I said, in the rest of the book of Acts, nobody prays for that. They pray for boldness to proclaim Christ and then the very house they're in shakes to its foundations and they're filled with the Spirit. So if you long for more of the Spirit in your life, if you long to see the Spirit working in you, then pray for boldness to preach the gospel. That's what the Spirit is passionately moving to do, to proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Do you seek to make Jesus Christ known? Pray for that boldness to make his name great. Let's turn to the text one more time, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The first thing we see in our text is that the start of the mission of God is our life with God by the Spirit. Second, we see that the content of the mission of God is the Son of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But finally, we see that the target of the mission of God is all those who are far off. We know the end of the story. The crowds are cut to the heart. They want to respond to Peter's sermon. And so he tells them to repent and be baptized, that they would receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says something remarkable, because the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off. And here's what I want you to notice. The promise is not for those who think they're near to God. It's not for those who think, I'm basically a good person, so God should accept me. It's not for those who think, if I just act really good, God will owe me. It's not for those who think, I can earn this righteousness somehow in my own power. Not at all. It's not for the people who think they're pretty good. Who does Peter say it's for? The very people who crucified Jesus. For their children and for all who are far off. Who is the gospel for? Not the near, but the far off. The gospel is for those who are guilty of crucifying Christ. This word far off in the Greek is makron, and it's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And the last time it was used in the New Testament before this was Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The son who had sinned against his father came to his senses and knew he was no longer worthy to be called his father's son. That son, while he was still a far way off, his father ran to him embraced him, threw his arms around him, and welcomed him home. Who is the gospel for? The far off. And here's why that matters, church. If you don't view yourself as one who is far off, as Paul says in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you don't view yourself that way, you're just not gonna care about this message. The late Tim Keller, he passed away just a couple weeks ago and it really, really moved me. I really loved that man. In one of his sermons, he talked about how his presbytery was considering ordaining a young pastor and one of the other presbyters said, no, he's not happy enough. He doesn't understand the gospel. He doesn't understand how far off he was and how much God loved him and did everything in his power to bring him near." to forgive him of his sins, he doesn't get it. And I wonder if that's a lot of us. The gospel just doesn't make us that happy because we don't see how far off we were, how great God's love for us really is. And the second problem is, not only will you be relatively unhappy with the gospel, but if you think you are a pretty good person, you're always gonna be looking down your nose at people who need the gospel. They're far-off ones. I'm I'm pretty near to God. I'm a pretty good person. Why can't they just be like me? Rather than seeing with empathy beloved children of God that he wants to bring home. Rather than delighting to share the message that has changed your life. And so we need to remember, church, that this gospel is for the far-off. The Holy Spirit is seeking the guilty, seeking sinners. It's no wonder that perhaps the greatest missionary ever, Paul, is the one who said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Is that how you understand the gospel? How great your sin was, and yet God had mercy on you? Paul says this, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Church, this Pentecost season, and that's really what all of ordinary time is life in the Spirit. I want us to be a lot more like our teenagers. I want us to delight in the gospel, to delight in the salvation we have received to see that we were far off and have been brought near, to remember that all mission starts with my life with God by the Spirit, that it always comes back to proclaiming this message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ's name and to go to the ends of the earth because no one is too far off. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit who has come that we might have intimate life with you again, relationship restored, nearness restored, and that we might proclaim Jesus with boldness. Holy Spirit, give us that boldness again. Give us a joy in the gospel again. Help us to see how we were far off And yet we were brought near by the blood of Christ. And send us out that all who are far off would hear this good news. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.